You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 31st, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We have a very special guest for you in this episode, Jeremy Grantham, the legendary investor who co-founded GMO, a Boston-based institutional money management firm, more than 40 years ago. With more than $60 billion in assets under management, GMO has produced steady returns for its investors through market booms and busts, largely thanks to the steady hand of Grantham and his investing philosophy, which holds that sooner or later, most valuations return to the mean. I have been reading Grantham's investing newsletters and research for over a decade and learned a great deal from them about the historical production and valuation of all sorts of commodities, as well as the relationships between consuming raw materials and economic performance, population growth trends, and much, much more. So I was hugely excited when he agreed to come on our show and share some of his knowledge. In this interview, we talked about his investing philosophy, the history of investment bubbles, how he values investments, what's happening in the markets as new retail traders using the Robinhood app and participating in Reddit-based trading groups drive stocks like GameStop wild, what the Fed should do as the world recovers from the pandemic, his views on the massive expansion of the U.S. national debt, how the world's governments are responding to the challenge of climate change, the role of venture capital in energy transition, and his outlook for energy transition in general. I love this conversation, and I think you will too. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll review several recent pledges by major automakers to convert their product lines to fully electric vehicles. We'll note a positive development for federal funding of advanced energy projects. And we'll review a series of recent moves by state legislators to halt the progress of energy transition. And before we go to the interview, we are pleased to announce a couple of new ways for you to share the Energy Transition Show with your friends and colleagues. First, every annual subscriber now gets three share links per year that they can give to someone else. Each share link will give the recipient one free month of access to the show, which will let them listen to the two most recent full episodes. So if you're an annual subscriber and you've been wanting a friend or a colleague to be able to listen to our full episodes, you can now share a free month with them three times a year. And second, by popular demand, we have made it easy for you to give a subscription to a friend using a simple form on our website. So if you have any friends or family that you think would appreciate learning more about Energy Transition, you can give them a year's subscription to the Energy Transition Show. It's great for birthdays, holidays, a token of appreciation, or whatever. To access both of these new features, just log into our website and go to the Manage Subscription page where you'll find the new Gift Accounts button. And thanks for spreading the word. And now, let's go to our interview with Jeremy Grantham, recorded February 15th, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jeremy, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Pleasure to be here. I have to admit right off the bat that I'm a huge fan of your work and that I've been reading your market analyses and studying your research on natural resources and their connection with the global macro economy for at least a decade now. I still have a collection of your quarterly letters and white papers going back to 2009. So <laughs> I have far more questions to ask you today than we have time to discuss, but suffice it to say that I'm just absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Well, thanks. A pleasure. So as we're going to discuss in a moment, you've developed a reputation as a contrarian at times based on your reading of hard data. But I take it that you're not necessarily a mathematician. So when did you first realize that you had a different relationship with numbers than most people? Actually, it goes back to about 12. I wasn't a mathematician. And actually, I was turned off by a math teacher, which happens to a lot of people. Hmm. It kind of blocked me. So if I see a page with a symbol on, I kind of go blank. <laughs> but I noticed that I had a good feel for general quantities. And therefore, when the answer was wrong, it always seemed fairly obvious to me. So the paradox was I spent 20 years of my life, kind of loosely speaking, leading a quant group. And quant group included at least one brilliant mathematician who came first in his year at Yale, which is no mean feat. It's a strong math place, and Chris Darnell by name. And yet, in general, I had as good a feel for when something was wrong in a page of data. So I realized very early that I was okay at arithmetic and quantities, I think we might call that and conclusions, orders of magnitude. In fact, the biggest shock, since you bring up the topic, was when I did a test in England to try and get into Harvard Business School. And I went into the test thinking that I was a wizard arithmetic. And I came out knowing that that was relative to Americans with fairly high minimum level of math skills, that that was not true. I was about an average math score for Harvard Business School, but I was firmly in the top 1% for verbal. Hmm. I had to kind of retool my vision of myself and Americans. So the way one does, I interpreted it as Americans are very good at math and hopeless at verbal, <laughs> 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 which, which as time went by has served me pretty well as an assumption. That's funny. Well, you know, it's good to have an intuitive sense for things. I can appreciate that. So today we're going to talk about investing themes and strategies in the energy transition today. But first, I'd like to introduce you and your investing style for those listeners who may not be familiar with it already. So you have a longstanding reputation as a long-term investor who uses fundamental valuation to guide your investments. And as part of that, you've made a science of studying historical speculative bubbles in markets, including developing some metrics to detect when valuations have gotten extreme. Extreme. That study served you very well in avoiding major losses when the market bubbles popped in 1989 and 2000 and 2008. And in an article that you published this January titled Waiting for the Last Dance, you called the current market a fully-fledged epic bubble replete with, quote, extreme overvaluation, explosive price increases, frenzied issuance, and hysterically speculative investor behavior. So would you explain your view to our listeners? By the way, when you say we avoided major losses, that is absolutely true. But to be fair, we also avoided some major gains. <laughs> On the way uh, up, right. <laughs> which was much more painful. Yes, indeed. And we discovered that clients respond to missed gains in a bubbly environment much more viciously 
than you would imagine. Interesting. And much more intensely hmm. than they respond to losses hmm. in a bear market. Hmm. In a bear market, everyone tends to freeze up, so they don't get around to shooting you if you've done particularly badly. Hmm. But in a bubble, they're not frozen at all. They're hyperactive, and they're playing golf with their buddy who's making a killing, and they get absolutely agitated if you're lagging behind. Hmm. So it is much more volatile and dangerous to lag a bull market than it is to lag a bear market. <laughs> so on paper, it sounds like you're doing a great job by clipping the bull and clipping the bear and lowering the volatility, lowering the risk, and hopefully in the long run, doing a little better on the round trip. It sounds great, but it isn't necessarily very commercial. So I got that off my chest. <laughs> Fair enough. So sorry, what did you want me to talk about? Well, I just wanted to explain your view of historical bubbles and how you evaluate them and why you think we're in one now. Well, you could say that doing value modeling was my business, that was professional. And the study of bubbles was, in a sense, more of a hobby. And there is a little clique of us bubble aficionados, and we've been comparing notes, some of us, for 30, 40 years. Hmm. And what it amounts to really is studying the psychology and the numbers of all the great bubbles in history. Some of us look at minor bubbles and make a big deal about it, you know, Kuwait stock market, and I don't. I just say, to hell with those little ones. They're not relevant. I'm only interested in bubbles that mattered to substantial economies or indeed the world. But the South Sea bubble was pretty spectacular, and the French shortly before that had a nice blow-up arranged by a Scotsman, Mr. Law, and then the tulips, of course, before that. And then, in a sense, fast forward to a couple of railway bubbles in the 19th century, both in the US and the UK, and a couple of banking bubbles and busts. And that brings us to the 20th century, where the US had a very rich supply. 1929 was a very serious, splendid-looking bubble. And it fulfilled all of the conditions one might hope for, and indeed became somewhat of a prototype. So you decide if it's a bubble, among other things, on how closely it has the characteristics of 1929. And then Japan. Japan may have been overlooked by some of the listeners, but Japan had a twin bubble, which is much more dangerous. They bubbled in their real estate market at the same time as they bubbled in their equity market. Hmm. And usually that is not the case. 1929 was not particularly a real estate market. 2000 absolutely was not. 2007, the financial crash, was a huge housing market, and that was, I believe, the most important input into that one. But Japan managed to have, I think, the biggest bubble of all time, including tulips and South Seas, and that was in their real estate market. And we spent a couple of days doing research into what we thought was an old wives' tale that the land under the Empress Palace in downtown Tokyo was worth more than the whole state of California. But it wasn't an old wives' tale. It was actually true. Wow. Downtown Tokyo was just ridiculous beyond belief. And the price they've paid is that it's cheaper today, 31 years later, 
and in some cases by quite a wide margin, which is tough. In comparison, the equity market was less impressive, but still the most impressive equity bubble of all time. And they went to 65 times earnings. And I always like to use that as an example of what makes a well-informed value manager wake up sweating from a nightmare because the Japanese equity bubble had never sold over 25 times earnings until it went to 65. Hmm. And that is a pretty brutal increment, you will agree. Yes. And now, all these years later, it's still nowhere near that level. The entire marketplace is nowhere near that level, even though the world is having a sympathetic bull market here, sympathetic to the bubble in the US. It still hasn't retraced its steps. Quite remarkable. Anyway, so we look at those and they become the classics. And then you throw in 2007 housing bubble, a little bit different, but still very interesting. And you look for common characteristics and you find that value, as you might have already deduced, is not a terrific measure because Japan goes to 65 times and 1929 only went to 21 times earnings. And then while you got out of the market in 1998 because it had gone to 22, you were then whacked around the head constantly until March of 2000 when it peaked at 35. Hmm. And 35 is a pretty painful and decent increment over 21. So the point is you can have a breakout new high, which would be nearly lethal to an excessively cautious investor in terms of the institutional market anyway. And we lost tons and tons of our book of business getting out early, even though we could point to the data and say this is the highest PE it's ever been, it was still pretty painful. They became impatient and they shot us. So price is not a good thing for timing, but what we noticed is that in the very late stages, uh, the price starts to go up much faster than the average for the bull market. So you're chugging along at a 12 or 13% annualized rate and suddenly you're doing 25. And the last almost two years, the last 21 months seems to be about the median. The last 21 months, you go into acceleration mode and you get faster and faster. And those of you who can remember 1999, the NASDAQ almost doubled in the last six months. I mean, they really start to yep. become vertical yep. and the dot-coms. Mm -hmm. The same thing in 29. 28 and the first chunk of 29 was just a huge gain. The secondaries were all up more than double and the market itself was close to a double. And the housing bubble was magnificent also and became actually the only three sigma event in our database for America. So that was a much bigger outlier even than the stock market in 2000. The housing market peaked about the beginning of 2006 and rolled over giving you an early warning and then retraced every inch of the way all the way back down to trend and then even a little below, inflicting huge loss of perceived value on the people who own those houses in particular. Very painful experience. You double your house price from 300000 to 600000 You take out a couple of second mortgages. You go on a holiday. You send your kid to college. And then it goes back to 300000 right. which is basically what happened. That creates an enormous wealth effect on the way up and an equal and offsetting 
anti-wealth effect on the way down when you least need it. Anyway, so those are the two characteristics are accelerating price and then crazy behavior. And the key to that is you want to see the financial news go from the finance page to the front page. You want to hear in the first two or three minutes of the evening news something about the stock market. And you want to have crazier and crazier examples of the market going up in complete disregard, obvious disregard, for the underlying value, which we have wonderful examples of today. And there has been nothing like this since 1999. So you were pointing out earlier the importance of price-to-earnings ratios as one of those key metrics in addition to just sort of the general speed of asset valuation increase. What would a normal PE look like and where are we in the broader market now in the U.S.? If you did 20 measures of value, this kind of PE and that kind of PE normalized this way and that way, you would find of those 20 that 14 or 15 were absolutely the highest they have ever been, higher than 2,000. And you would find five of them that were still a little bit below 2,000. So even on something as straightforward as PE, if you normalize on a running 10-year average, it's a bit lower today than 2,000. But if you normalize for profit margins, which a lot of us like to do, it's substantially higher today than 2,000. And so it goes on. So 2000 is a contender, but most of us who felt that last summer it was a dead heat now feel that this is a more impressive looking overpricing than 2000. So you were speaking a moment ago how you're waiting to see what would normally be finance news make it to sort of the front page general news as one of those indications of a bubble. It's hard to imagine a better example of this sort of hysterically speculative investor behavior you refer to than what we've seen in recent weeks. I mean, this is exactly what you were talking about. You've got traders coordinating their efforts through these Reddit message boards and the Robinhood app making it easier than ever for anyone to trade in stocks and options. A small handful of stocks that they focused on, like GameStop, and AMC garnered huge headlines. It just became front page news for being a novel phenomenon and and probably fair enough for extracting a few billion dollars from some short-leaning hedge funds. Certainly some people enjoyed a moment of schadenfreude there. But experienced investors are already looking past those fireworks, surely, and asking some much more fundamental questions about whether we need reforms to our market structures, our incentives, our regulation, and so on. For example, on CNBC a few weeks ago, I heard Mark Cuban argue that the stock market isn't even about investing anymore, in which algorithmic high-speed trading has really driven the average stock hold period down to a mere 40 seconds, and that it's basically just wagering now anyway, so why not let all these bored kids try their hand at it? And of course, Now we have the SPAC craze as well, which I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, but I'm risk-averse like that. So as a long-term investor, I'm so curious about your perspective on all this. I mean, are the days of buying a good value stock and holding it for decades, expecting it to appreciate in value, long gone? And what should retail investors do now, especially if they're now at risk of seeing their holdings of what would otherwise be solid value stocks having been sold off by hedge funds who now have to raise capital to meet margin calls or, as in the market crash of 2008, counterparty risk rippling through the markets and other market oddities that really have nothing to do with fundamental valuations? Well, that's, by my count, seven questions. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Okay. So... (laughs) The nice thing about holding a cheap stock for the long term is 
the longer you wait, the more you live in the real world. And in the end, value is about the discounted value of a future stream of dividends. And if other people hate your stock because it's not cool, and it consequently yields 6% instead of 3 <laughs> whoopee, you just tuck it away, make twice the yield, reinvest the yield, double your money every 12 years, and you get rich like the good old days. And no one can take that away. So you have the Warren Buffett style advantage that in the long run, you're there receiving the flow of earnings and dividends eventually, if they've overpaid or not. As I like to say, there's only one truth about a, a bull market, and that is every day the market goes higher, it only does one thing. It guarantees that your return over the following 10 or 20 years will be less than it would have been the day before. Hmm. There is no getting around that. You can't have your cake and eat it. You can have the price higher today, or you can have a higher long-term return, but you can't have both. Hmm. And of course, the net effect of that for society is you'd much better have cheaper prices and a higher return on your asset class. As I say, you'd much rather have a 6% return compounding doubling every 12 years than three doubling every 24 years. By 48 years, you have a quarter of the wealth as a society reinvesting your profits. And then in 92 years, you have a 16th, but you get my point. It's a terrible way for society and individuals to get rich in the long run to have a lower return. And the dastardly thing about high prices is that it lowers your return. Mm. So you double the price of stock and your 6% yield does go to three, or today more likely your 3% goes to one and a half. And if you double the price of a forest or a farm, which they have done incidentally over 25 years under this new era of Fed policy, and the same thing happens. Your profit doesn't allow you to buy increments of acreage that your grandfather could have done. And the other thing is that if you're not on the game, if you haven't made it onto the ladder, the first step, the house you have to buy is twice the price. And you can only afford half the house. You can only afford half the portfolio. You can only afford half the dividend stream. And the return on your money and your cash, of course, is negative. It makes it very, very hard to get rich and it piles all the rewards on the people who are already rich, which is tough. And actually, pretty quickly, it's bad for the economy. Henry Ford would have said, if I don't pay my guys decent wage, how are they going to buy my cars? And if you squeeze the average worker, as we have done in the US, how are they going to keep the economy going? The average hourly wage since 1975 is up less than 10% adjusted for inflation in the US. In France, it's up 160 and the Brits are up about 70. And if you read Business Week for the last 60 years, trust me, we have been kicking French bottoms all the time. Mm. You know, the French have suffered from this, they've suffered from that, eurosclerosis, the French don't like to work, and yet for an hour's work, they're up 160% versus our eight or nine. Right. I mean, that is stunning. Yeah. But we've done quite well in aggregate GDP approximately the same as they have. But all of our gains have accrued to the top few percent. Hmm. And theirs has been spread around. And they're the ones who are in the market. So does this concern you, this sudden 
influx of, you know, especially young traders coming in through platforms like Robinhood or what we're seeing happen in these Reddit groups or, or for that matter, the SPACs. I mean, doesn't this all smell very speculative? Absolutely. And one level, I welcome it because having predicted that there's a bubble, which is obvious, and having predicted that it's probably not going to live more than a few months and perhaps only a few weeks, I welcome the signs that we're getting towards the end. <laughs> and this explosion of SPACs and the craziness of GameStop, that all, GameStop, etc., follows my prediction. It came afterwards, so that's great. The SPACs were already growing like a weed in the second half of last year. But in January, February, they have doubled the rate once again. And as SPACs are just a license to rip people off. You know, you, you run around the countryside for six months and you get to keep 20% of all the money that's committed to your SPAC, which is ludicrous high return mm. to anyone with some name recognition. And in a speculative market, you don't even have to have super name recognition. You certainly don't have to have many qualifications to invest other people's money. And then half of the people who sign up for the SPAC on day one are professional SPAC signers who do it to get a decent return that's built into the equation of a SPAC. And they get a few warrants typically to keep to make some money if it works. And if it doesn't work, it's free. And then when the day comes to put up the serious money, they never do. Hmm. So half of it just cashes in, makes a return, keeps the warrants and lives happily ever after at the cost of the half that put up their money. So they make, on average, a dismal return. Yeah, the late stages of the bubble, of course, they get off to a very promising start like everyone on the planet. But in general, over the six years of the SPACs, they've done less than the market by a wide margin. And so they should, since they're subsidizing these two other groups. So the early investors coming into the SPAC, the founders or the first couple tranches of investors coming into it, they get paid. They make out all right. It's, it's the ones who come in later, the retail investors who, as always, wind up being the bag holders. No, actually, on day one, when you put up your money, the guys who put up their money on day one, half of them are getting ripped off. Hmm. The organizers make a killing, typically. They get 20% of everything for putting up nothing. They have to pay for the original road trip and the organizing, but that's nothing in comparison. Right. And then if anyone comes in on the top of that, that's like any IPO. The, the guys who trade after the open tend to be ripped off by the guys who hold the stock at the open, the fidelities of the world for the traditional IPOs. The underwriters. No, not the underwriters. The underwriters then go on a road trip and see who wants to sign up for the $500 million worth of offering. Gotcha. And the people who get first choice are the Fidelities and Putnams of the world. And in return for getting a big slice of a hot issue, they used to call them, because they're going to come at 12 deliberately and they're going to open at 23. And the guys who've been given an allotment are just, it's a license to steal. Hmm. And in return, they have these informal, unspoken agreements to do a huge amount of commission trading with the person who allotted them the stock which is a crummy way to do business, but that's how it's done. And a SPAC has other disadvantages though. They're not all disadvantages, but one of them is that they're barely regulated at all. Right. So you can get away with murder, which is in the long run, a dangerous way to organize your market. And 
the idea that you commit money without knowing what the hell you're going to do. There's a famous <laughs> one in the South Sea bubble, you know, an undertaking of great interest, but no one to know what it is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they put up lots of money and the guys quite justifiably ran off to the South Seas with it. Why not? And they got nothing. But on these SPACs, that's what you're doing. You're putting it up and hoping that someone somewhere knows what the hell they're doing. And of course, they know what they're doing. They, they're going to take 20% of your money. That's what they're doing. <laughs> so one should be very careful. And I'm sorry for these guys who are playing in GameStop. Some of them make money. But in general, when the price settles back down at what it's worth, from the peak, in this case, $30 billion will have been vaporized. Yeah, $30 billion was snatched out of thin air and then $30 billion was given back. But it's different people in both cases, different mm. people making the losses. And it's a tough way to develop a market of investors, to suck them in and blow them up like that. Well, I mean, I think Mark Cuban's point is well taken then, that they're not actually investors. This is just straight wagering. It is straight wagering, but they are being seduced. Let's mm. be honest about that. Mm. This isn't happening out of thin air. This is with the great encouragement of, of many people who should know better up to and including Musk and so on, putting yeah. in good words for these guys. They don't want to be encouraged. They want to be warned. Hmm. And one interesting thing is I've been there, done that. 2000 was not really a super speculative individual game. That was a speculative institutional game, believe it or not. 29 was both, but there was an individual mini bubble that was very like this in 1968, 69. We were all kids just arriving in the investment business and these stocks were like little rockets. We would, I guess it was pump and dump. Mm. You know, we'd get together at lunch, guys from all the mutual funds in Boston and, and we'd say, what's the stock we like this week? And one year it was going to introduce Formula One Grand Prix racing, American Raceways. And it was going to have the former world champion Sterling Moss on its board. And we were going to have them all over America and it was going to be loud and noisy and powerful and death and all good American things, I thought. <laughs> so how can we miss? And I bought 300 shares at seven and went off on my holiday to Europe with my wife. And we went to England and Germany, came back three weeks later and it was 21. That was typical, absolutely typical, just like hmm. today. Hmm. And so I did what any good value manager would do. I sold everything else I had and tripled up. <laughs> so now, now, now I had 900 shares at 21 and it was 100 by Christmas and I was rich by my standards. You know, two years out of business school, I suddenly had enough net after borrowing to buy a house, a Victorian house in the suburbs next to an orchard. But unfortunately, they turned down my offer. And so instead of buying this wonderful house with cash, I was left in the market and the market broke. And by early 69, I had given back all my money. Wow. Uh, like they're doing in GameStop. So right. I know the feeling. It was absolutely thrilling, exciting. And it was a powerful lesson, which I did internalize for the rest of my investment career. But I, I hate to see too many other people going down that path. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Volvo is the latest automaker to declare its intentions to go fully electric by 2030. I am totally convinced there will be no customers who really want to stay with a petrol engine, Volvo Chief Executive Hakan Samuelson told reporters when asked about future demand for electric vehicles. We are convinced that an electric car is more attractive for customers, he said. And as an interim goal, the company announced that half of its global sales will be full electric by 2025. That's right, within the next four years, with the other half being hybrids. Interestingly, the company also announced that its upcoming line of electric cars would be sold online only. The announcement adds to a chorus of similar automaker announcements in recent months. Volkswagen plans to be fully electric by 2027. Ford, Jaguar, and Bentley all intend to switch to battery electrics by 2030. And GM recently announced that it aspires to make all of its new light-duty vehicles fully electric by 2035. On January 29th, I had a few more things to say about the recent developments in the EV sector in cameo appearances I made in the New York Times and on NPR's Marketplace show. Log into our website and see the links in the show notes for this episode if you want to check those out. Item 2. Federal funding for renewable energy projects just got a big boost in the U.S. On February 26th, the new U.S. Energy Secretary, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, announced that she would revive the Department of Energy's $40 billion loan programs office. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.